Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show SWAT legend and the author of The Long Road Home, Sandy Wall. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from Sandy's early life, his journey into law enforcement, working narcotics, the evolution of the SWAT program, SWAT medic, school safety, and of course, his book, which is filled with some incredible stories from his career and some of the men and women that he served with. Now, before we get to this amazing conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Sandy Wool. Enjoy. Well, Sandy, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. It's my honor. Thank you for the opportunity. Now, we were connected by uh, Chuck DeChera. So just as a kind of icebreaker, how do you guys know each other? I used to run the Safari Land uh, training group. It's uh, Safari Land. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Uh, they're about the largest manufacturer of law enforcement equipment in the United States. And uh, they had a training program primarily consisted of uh, the use of their products, uh, which Chuck, uh, being a SWAT guy, he probably could have taught a whole lot of things. But he primarily uh, was a, a self-defense instructor. And um, one of our product lines was Manadnock Batons. And he was one of our instructors and uh, hosted our conference a few times up there at his agency. So I've known him for years. He worked for me as an instructor. Uh, when I was running the program, but a, a great guy, super talent, uh, really enjoyed my time with those guys. Beautiful. Well, kind of first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in the beautiful South uh, East Texas along the coastal bend, we call it, not far from the Gulf of Mexico. I'm about halfway between the city of Houston and the city of Corpus Christi and about 30 miles inland, uh, if that makes sense. Okay, absolutely, it does. So I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay, yeah, I was born about 30 miles from where I'm at right now, a little town called Bloomington, Texas, and uh, had three older brothers. I'm the baby of the family. I was supposed to have been a girl. Uh, my wife kept trying to uh, have a daughter and have a daughter. And then when I finally popped out, uh, she, uh, the doctor said I was a boy. And she looked at him and said, well, you're fired. And then she looked at my dad and said, and you're fired too. <laughs> so that was it. Four four's uh -huh. enough. Uh, and uh, so he bought her a boat and named it Angela, which was going to be the girl's name if, if I would have been a girl. Uh, but um, uh, my father was um, uh, worked in the uh, pipeline industry, uh, 
connecting uh, products from chemical plants and that sort of stuff. It's chemical plants along the Gulf, uh, Gulf Coast here is pretty prominent. It's big business and uh, employs a lot of people. And so that was his job. And my mother was pretty much a housemaker with, you know, four boys. Two of them are quite a bit older. And then one of them was just a couple of years older than me. And um, uh, but, yeah, she kept herself busy with odd jobs and picking up little stuff toward the end of her of uh of my time at home she became a a, a part-time nurse but um but yeah she um uh so we grew up in the country uh not a small town life uh about 2000 people in my hometown i had 52 people in my graduating high school class so we knew everybody and uh you know where they lived and what their brothers and sisters names and what their dog's name was and you know it, it's small town life and um, um, my my brothers had all moved off uh, and became successes. And uh, it was my time. Uh, finally, I went to a couple of years of college and uh, just didn't really enjoy that and uh, saw a poster about joining the Houston Police Department. And I thought, wow, that would be interesting. And uh, the rest is history. When you look back at that small community, um what were the the pros of that kind of living? Where I live now in, in Florida, I'm part of you know a very kind of new manufacturer community, but it's five housing subdivisions around a communal park, swimming pool, basketball courts, tennis courts, and that kind of old fashioned. You know, the kids come home and the lights come on. That's what they've got, and the kids play together, and they're all different ethnicities, and a lot of people are first generation immigrants. Um, but it's the kind of community and um, kind of neighbor mentality that i feel that some areas maybe we've lost a little bit what was what was the you know the the dynamic of growing up in a small town versus the houston city that you ended up working in it was much like mayberry rfd uh you know there was no crime uh we never locked our doors we left the keys in our cars um uh we if we went on vacation we might lock the doors but that would be about it um i can never remember any crime at all um and uh it, you knew all your neighbors we we played my mother and father didn't have a clue where we were all day the, the rule was you'd be in by dark and as long as we were in by dark then that, that was it she had she had no idea where we were at and uh, we went all over that part of the county uh, on, on our bicycle. Sometimes we might go 20 miles to go fish in a creek or or uh, to go hunting along a riverbank. And um, yeah, it's um, it was great. It was carefree. I really enjoyed it. Uh, but then once I decided I was going to go a law enforcement career, I, I decided I was going to be all in. I uh, nothing against small town policing. Uh, those guys do a wonderful job, and it's, it can be just as dangerous as big town policing. But there's just more crime in a big city, and so that's why I decided to go to Houston. Well, actually, I I I looked at Houston, Austin, and San Antonio, and at the time, Houston was paying the best, and they were actively recruiting, so it was kind of a easy button for me. And um, and and it was, you know, of course, a little little small town kid in a big city. And I write about this in my book. I was totally lost. I uh, had no idea about traffic, about crime, about downtown Houston, where the police academy was. And uh, and I'm screwing up left and right. And there's a lot of uh, stories in there right at the beginning about me trying to get my footing and get my feet on the ground and get my head above water. Well, just back to the childhood for a moment, you were out hunting and fishing. What about sports? Were you playing any sports during that childhood? Yeah, and I write about that in my book. Uh, 
uh, two of my three brothers were were very gifted athletes. Uh, both of them went to college on on one on a football scholarship, one on a track scholarship. The other one, uh, the oldest, was uh, the smart one of the bunch, and he went. He's a, became an aerospace engineer at the University of Texas. So I was the the, the odd man out. Uh, I wasn't smart, and I wasn't that good an athlete. I mean, I could make the team, and I and I played all the sports, but. Uh, uh, I was never a standout. I was too small. I think I graduated from high school weighing about 150 pounds. Uh, so uh, uh, I, I was just skinny. And uh, uh, yeah, it, uh, it, it, I, but I had a great high school uh, experience. Uh, it, I never was bullied or anything like that. And and uh, and and was was relatively popular, uh, but everybody knew everybody. We it was um, it, it was high school was just a, a really memorable time, and I I uh, look I think back on it very fondly. Being the youngest of uh, all the boys, did that create any sort of tenacity that carried through when you became a police officer? Um, maybe uh, I, my brother that was two years older than me, you know, we still lived together. Uh, we lived in the same house. And um, um, the old, the other two brothers were quite a bit older. They'd already left. So I never got picked on by them. But my older brother was a little bit bigger than me most of the time. And and it was a, you know, a friendly competition. We loved each other and we got along great. But it was it was always a, a friendly competition. And so I, I, I learned, uh, you know, uh, the, the ins and outs of taking care of and take, standing up for yourself. A lot of it through him. So uh, and and I'm sure that paid dividends down the road. So walk me through going from small town to big city because I I grew up on a farm in England and I found myself um, initially working in the Miami area as a firefighter. So quite a cultural change there. What was your experience? Yeah, same thing. I, I uh, you know find an apartment. I had no furniture. I uh, I started out right at the beginning. I, I just had a a mattress. Didn't even have a box spring or stands or anything. And I, that was my bedroom. And my clothes, I just laid them out on the floor. And that was it. And then I had some toiletries in the bathroom. In the, my living room, I had a, a cardboard box with the TV on it and a beanbag. And that's the extent of my furniture. That's I was starting out extremely meager. And uh, and of course, you know, in an apartment. I, these people all around all the time and all hours of the night in a city that just never sleeps the size of Houston. Uh, that was, that took some getting used to and just hearing noises. And, and we were, my apartment complex was right next to the freeway. So there's trucks going by all hours of the night. And yeah, it was, it was a real culture shock. And then, um, um, the traffic, oh, oh, you know, you can imagine Houston traffic and, and, uh, and then having to travel all the way downtown, which was about a 20 mile one way commute, uh, uh, and, and trying to get used to that. I was late my very first day I walked into police Academy, which was a super no, no. And, and it was because of the traffic I had driven that route the night before to be prepared, but I had no clue about the traffic. And then at Monday morning, I get up and, oh, my God, it was a different world. So uh, I was in big trouble right from the get go. And uh, I write about that in the book. It, it, it got me way behind the curve. So, you know, we'll obviously talk about policing modern day. But when you first entered the profession, what were the fitness standards or, or the philosophy towards fitness and also the defensive tactics side? It was terrible. Uh, now, the academy, I, I overtrained for that. I thought it was going to be kind of like uh, the military. 
uh, you know, boot camp, and it wasn't. Uh, it was it was rigorous. Um, you know, you had to be in shape, but uh, it was nothing like what I had trained for. I was doing two a days, uh, but to getting ready for that, and uh, and and so the physical part was relatively easy for me. As far as the uh, the police department, there were no physical standards. Um, uh, the police officers walking around uh, were much more likely to die from a heart attack than getting shot. Uh, or getting killed in a car wreck because of their just totally out of shape. And, 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 you know, once they, they hit the street out of the Academy, they were all pretty lean and, and, and in shape. And then it didn't take long riding around in that police car and eating fast food and all the bad things that come along with uh, that lifestyle. Uh, it, uh, guys started adding weight to their, their waistlines and they were going back and getting bigger gun belts and bigger uniforms and, you know, by the time they were six, seven, eight, ten years on the force, they didn't even look like what they looked like coming out of the academy. So that was an occupational hazard, absolutely. When you look back now, because I mean, there's 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 factors I talk about a lot that would contribute to that. But back then, what what did people put it down to? Uh, uh, just like ah, oh, rookie, yeah, you you're you're in pretty good shape right now, but you wait till you get out of here on the street. Uh, you know, you're, you're going to find out what real policing's like, and uh, you ain't going to be able to keep that that waistline. Believe me, it it just it just comes with aging. That was the uh, was with the word I, I heard or the phrase I heard a lot. And one thing I'm proud of is I weighed the exact same weight today as I did when I came out of the academy. I weigh 185 pounds. I haven't gained a drop, a, a pound. I haven't lost a pound. I, I stayed right there because that was the weight that I felt like I. I was the best at, and and I was always a, an, a you know workout nut. Like I said, I wasn't a gifted athlete, but I love to work out. I love to stay in shape, and I know it helped me a lot in my career. But uh, you know, smoking was pretty prevalent in the police department back then. Uh, definitely fast food, and and, uh, and and of course in Houston we got Mexican food, we got barbecue, we got all the things that are really not good for you. In in uh, in in you know mass quantities, but we had guys that would put it away. Now, what about the defensive tactics side, the, the hands-on training, um, restraining, that kind of thing? Back in those days, I, I came out of the academy in 1976, actually January of 77. Um, any tactics you, you learned were in the police academy. And as soon as you got out on the street, your senior officer would, would tell you, hey, you forget all that crap you learned in the academy. I'm going to tell you how it's really. And he pulled out that that five cell uh, flashlight and said, this is your best weapon. This is how you fight on the street. You crack heads open. And, you know, and, and, and I saw it happen a few times. Now I don't, I'm not going to say I never saw an abusive officer. Uh, I probably did. Uh, I try to forget those, but most of them were in good fights. I mean, the, the, the crook was fighting actively and, but there were no punches pulled. There were no, you know, strikes uh, of, uh, of, you know, that, that are recognized now. It was like a Kellite flashlight to the head and putting down and putting down quickly. And uh, guys would a lot of times end up going to hospital, but, you know, that's just the way it was back then. Nobody thought anything about it. When I graduated from the academy, the Houston Police Department didn't even have an internal affairs division. If there was a, a use of force complaint or anything like that, it just went up through uh, your supervisor. And uh, and a lot of times those things were handled, you know, if you kind of get my drift and uh, there wasn't uh, a lot put of effort put into 
getting rid of, you know, problem children out there. Uh, but once we got the NIED division up and going, uh, and there were some cases where people were made example of, then a lot of that started taking care of itself. Now, as far as the crime landscape in the late late 70s, what were you faced with? What were some of the biggest challenges at that point? Well, you know, Houston was a growing city uh, and uh, and with crime, uh, you know, it, it, it grows too. Uh, we had a, a pretty high crime rate. Well, I, I wouldn't say that we were along the lines of Chicago or New York, but uh, that we would have oh, I'm going to say about uh, uh, 250 to 300 murders a year. Um, and, uh, you know, most of my, when I first hit the street, I worked patrol for three years and most of your day when you SO'd and that was stands for sign on, when you left roll call, went out and got in your police car and told the dispatcher that you were in service for a call, she handed you a call and you went to that call and you would get there and people were been waiting for two hours uh, for some, so they're pissed off at you and you're like, Sir, I just got this. I just got on duty. And so you handle it as best you can, maybe make an arrest, maybe have to write a report or whatever. Then you tell the dispatcher, I'm back in service. Clear. Take this call. And there was no time for active policing. In other words, going out and looking for bad guys and trying to be proactive, fighting crime. It was handling calls. And we were going from one to another to another to another. And uh, and and I was working evening shift most of my patrol life and uh and fighting uh, traffic. I mean, I can remember a robbery in progress alarm at a 7-Eleven and it's two blocks up the road. I can even see the sign of the 7-Eleven, but I can't get there because it is bumper to bumper cars between here and there. I might as well jump out of the car and take off running and get there quicker. Uh, so that was some of the frustrations in a big city and in the evening shift. But when I finally did ride night shift, I was like, oh, my God, you can actually drive around. <laughs> it was amazing because three o'clock in the morning, there's not that many people out and you could you could drive fast. It was it was pretty, uh, pretty uh, a different dynamic on night shift. Now, what about areas like gangs, you know, certain drugs? What, what were you seeing back in the 70s then? We didn't really have the gang problem. I'm not going to say there weren't gangs. When we said gangs back in those days, we were thinking motorcycle gangs. And maybe some criminal elements, but not gangs like you see to now with all the tagging and the signs and, you know, and all the stuff. We didn't have any of that. Uh, uh, that didn't start happening until, and I think it actually came from, I could be wrong. I'm, my, my, I'm thinking it came from California, all this tagging on, on signs of, uh, on, you know, railroad cars and buildings and all that. But where they started getting the Crips and the Bloods and all that, we had none of that back in those days. Uh, if if there was a gang, it was a loosely organized um, a criminal gang. And we did have some cartels out of Mexico uh, trafficking drugs. And uh, and then we had some, um, um, you know, prostitution rings and stuff that were somewhat organized. But it was a different type of gang than we have today. Now, you've written a book, The Long Road Home, and it's, you know, there's so many stories in there. So what I'll do is try and kind of just get you to pull a couple out as we progress through each stage. So when you're on patrol, before you get to SWAT, you know, what were some of the career calls that, that you love to tell about that portion of your life? Uh, well, uh, one of my uh, best ones, I guess I'd say, I ended up getting a chief's commendation for it, even though it was strictly by luck. I was riding with this guy named Bubba. And uh, and Bubba was a gun nut and I'm young rookie riding around. And he said, hey, and this was right after the first Dirty Harry 
movie came out and everybody wanted a Smith and Wesson 44 Magnum. And he said, Hey, I got a 44 Magnum. I bought it at the gun show on the way to work. And I said, you're kidding me. And he's like, yeah, you want to see it? And I'm like, yeah. So we pull over and he pops a trunk and uh, we're looking at it. And I'm like, wow, real Smith and Wesson 44 Magnum. And he says, you want to shoot it? And I'm like, uh, yeah, <laughs> but we're in city of Houston. He said this evening, if there's nothing going on, say about 10, 1030, before we go back to the station, we'll go out off Patterson Road, which was on the edge of town. You had to get out of our beat, but that wasn't uncommon back in those days because nobody could track your car or something. You could go wherever. Uh, and uh, and we'll get off a little road, I know, and we'll shoot it. I'm like, that's awesome. And about that time, a rape in progress just uh, or a rape, uh, attempted rape just occurred and it was right down the road. So we jump in the car and, of course, we pull out and we're trying to get there and we're all caught up in the traffic and, uh, and another police unit made it there first and they get on the radio and said the suspect had left the scene in a 1962 Bonneville Pontiac with no hood over the engine and a doghouse sticking out of the trunk. And we're looking at each other like, oh, my God, that's going to be so easy to spot. What an idiot, you know. So we're driving around looking, looking, looking. And after about an hour of looking for this car, we, we gave up. And uh, so we got more information, said the guy had a gray jumpsuit. And he said had Harvey was his name on his uh, nameplate. And he had greasy, dirty hands like he was a mechanic. And uh, so we're kind of throughout the entire shift of answering calls and doing whatever we were doing. We're always on the lookout for this car. But it, I'll be honest, toward the end of our shift, we pretty much forgot about it. It's like, nah, he's not still in that car. He's dumped that car somewhere. And we'll probably find that next week sometime. And uh, so then Bubba says, hey, it's about 1030. You want to go out on Patterson Road and shoot that gun? I'm like, hell yeah. So we go out there and it's a little old gravel uh, type road. that kind of cuts between two major thoroughfares and it's real wooded. There's nobody around. And so he, he stops the car and he gets out and he, and he says, "Get go find some beer cans and we'll set them up on the road. I'm like, OK. So I got my flashlight out and I'm over there looking for some cans out in the ditch. And then here comes some headlines. And he says, hey, hey, uh, look like we're investigating something. So we're both standing there shining <laughs> our flashlights around like we're, we're doing something policing, you know. And and as a car goes by, we kind of glance back. It's a 1962 Pontiac Bonneville with no hood over the engine and a doghouse sticking out of the trunk. We about fell down trying to run and get back to our car. We jump in the car, go pull him over. The guy gets out. He's got a gray jumpsuit, still got the name Harvey right here, and his hands are all, I mean, it's him. And, and of course, you know, uh, and I think I titled that chapter, I'd rather be lucky than good because we just got lucky. But of course, Bubba wrote it up as like dynamic detective work and we never quit <laughs> looking for this guy. And we had a hunch that he might be, you know, cutting through some back rows. And 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 the, the sergeant sent it up to the chief's office and we got an accommodation for it. And the whole time we were out there gonna shoot beer cans, you know, on the side of the road. <laughs> That's funny when you talk about you know a, a partner that has a, a gun fetish and pulls out one of those guns. I think of one of the police academy um, characters. Anyway, if you ever watch those movies, I forget his name now. But oh yeah, 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 I know who you're talking about. So, what made you decide to progress into SWAT? And then talk to me about the the uh, what that looked like. What what was the special operations? What was SWAT back in those days? Yeah. 
Well, I never really thought I had a chance to make it on the SWAT team, but one of the other guys from my academy class, and I was in better shape and uh, a little more athletic than him, and I would, he was an even smarter than me, and he made it. And I thought, oh, my God, if he can make it, maybe I ought to try out. So uh, I still didn't have a lot of hopes, but um, – uh, I put my name in a hat when, when there was an opening coming up. We They had about a 24-man SWAT team, and there was like three or four openings. So I thought, well, maybe I'll, I will I got a shot here. And um, uh, went down there and filled out my application. They did a background check on me. Uh, a couple of things you couldn't have had. You could have never been found um, um, uh, guilty of untruthfulness. Uh, you know, like on a witness stand or whatever. You could have never had an, uh, a... Um, uh, excessive force complaint that was found to be true and um, something else. I can't remember what that was, but I met that criteria. And then um, we did a PT test and uh, it was push up, sit up, pull ups and a two mile run. And I, I was in great shape. So I smoked that and came up right near the top of the, of the, uh, of the competition for that. And then um, it was the background check in the department, and you had to go see the departmental psychiatrist, uh, and they gave you this written test. It was the weirdest test. You know, it was questions in there like, do you avoid cracks in the sidewalk, you know, and do you, uh, you know, when you walk in the room, do you think people are talking about you, and do you like long-legged women, and I don't know. It was some really, really stupid questions in there. But believe it or not, when I had my follow-up interview with him, he tagged me. It, it, I, I'm telling you that test, he learned a lot about me in that test. It was almost spooky how much he, he learned about me. But anyway, uh, and then the last thing was the interview with uh, the three sergeants down there. And I'll never forget it. it this was another great little story. Uh, they're sitting there and trying to ask you these questions. And, and one of the questions which really kind of caught me, they said, could you pull the trigger and kill a person even though he's done nothing to you, you've seen him do nothing to anyone else. It's just someone over the radio told you, take him out. Could you do it? And I'm like, uh, I'm thinking, I know, you know, this is going to be like a sniper situation and, and the, the green light's been given kind of thing. So I knew I, deep down inside, I was kind of questioning myself if I really could, but I wasn't about to say no. So I said, yeah, if if, if I trust the supervision and the person telling me that, and I figure it's got to be for the, they know something that I don't. So yes, I could. And then they got around to asking me if I go to church. And, uh, and it was right after that question to come up. So I'm thinking they're going with the angle, like how religious are you? Are you so religious that you couldn't take another life? And uh, and I said, yes, I go to church. And they said, how often? I said, every Sunday. And they really. And you can see them kind of looking at each other and kind of pushing back. You go every Sunday. What, what church do you go to? And I said, First Baptist Church over on Memorial Drive. Really? Every Sunday? Yes, sir. Every Sunday. And I said, I got an extra job there. I direct traffic in and I direct traffic out. And oh, man, they busted up <laughs> laughing. Yeah, because I really had to go to the church. I just had an extra job directing traffic there. But that caught them. And I knew right then I'd hit a, I'd hit a home run. And, uh, and I came out number one when the, when the list uh, came up of the people that competed. It was about 40 people on that list. I was number one. And so I was real proud of that. I still have that letter, as a matter of fact. Well, again, yeah, we talked about the the crime um, environment when you first joined PD. What was the SWAT environment? You know, what ver compared to, to to the environment that you still teach in today? You know, what were 
where on that kind of genesis was it as far as the uh the progression of tactics fitness um equipment etc yeah well uh we weren't near as active i'd say active we got a lot of calls we we get anywhere between 20 and 30 SWAT situations a month so we were pretty busy but um it was mainly just surround and call them out we did not do dynamic entry even though we were tasked with hostage rescue, we never trained on it. We didn't. We didn't have a clue how to do a dynamic entry. Uh, and uh, and chemical agents was a big part of our. We gas them. We gas them out. And uh, and we did go in then do slow searches. We did a lot of that. But we didn't have near the equipment. We didn't have tasers right at first. I, I talk about it in the book. There's a, a transition there when tasers finally show up, and there's a couple of really funny stories in there. Uh, when we we get to trying them out because the department would when anything high tech like that they would usually give it to SWAT and let them try it and get their opinion as to whether or not it's something that could be implemented into patrol uh, but things like that and then less lethal munitions started coming around beanbag kind of things and we started implementing those and then flashbangs it was like holy crap that was right after the the uh, Princess Gate uh, incident in uh, in in London. Uh, where the SAS uh, uh, stormed that building and they were using these explosions. And we're looking at it like, what the hell is that? And they didn't take but about eight to 10 months, maybe a year. We had vendors coming around and saying, here's what they were using. And we're like, really? Oh, cool. And then they take us out and show it to us. And we were like, that's awesome. And then and then we started training with the uh, military a lot. Uh, the um, Army Delta Force guys would come out of Fort Bragg and they were always going to big cities and looking for buildings that they could destroy in their training, trying to replicate an environment that they might have to go overseas and operate in. And so we started learning from those guys. And that was a paradigm shift for us. They were teaching us things about explosive breaching and, and of course, deployment of flashbangs and, and dynamic entry and tools that we had never even fathomed and how a real hostage rescue is done. And that just took us to a new level. And those guys today now, they have so many assets. I mean, they got little drones that can fly through the building. They have robots. They have all kinds of things that we did not have. We didn't even operate much with dogs back then. And that was a that, that was not good because we later on started working with dogs and found out what an asset they could be. But back then we, we didn't. So there was just very little equipment, very little assets, very little training. But yet we had a, a mission and it, we went to some hostage situations, but we never did a hostage assault. We always negotiated it to an end and or went in, unfortunately, and found everybody dead. And that happened a few times. I heard you on, I think it was the Re Resilience Project. I think I've got that right. I think it was a San Antonio law enforcement officer. Um, and it was an interesting yeah. uh, comment that you made. And I was going to jump on it now, seeing as you opened the door. The dynamic entry, which seems to be, you know, the kind of gold standard from from the, the, the white belt non-police officer looking in, you were talking about ultimately you changed your mind on that and that actually you kind of gone back to the philosophy of of not going in uh, with all the training that you had realizing how dangerous and how precarious some of these situations were so i'd love to you to, for you to expand on that if you were yeah and i was referring mainly to narcotics um uh, evidence going in and, and we i spent three years in the narcotics division and i was on what they call the rating and we were kicking doors left and right, and we were going in to rescue the dope. 
And we were risking our lives to rescue dope, you know, and it was so stupid looking back on it now. But at the time, it's what everybody did. And we just accepted it. And over the years now, I look at how many police officers I know, and there's several that were killed doing that very thing. And believe me, I just got lucky. Uh, uh, and, and, and it was over dope. And most of this stuff that we're risking our lives on is going to be legal one day. Uh, and or the crooks really don't do much time. They're right back out. And, and yet we were risking our lives to go in and do that. So uh, when lives are in jeopardy, then that's a whole different thing. You know, when when they're holding hostages and I'm still not for going anytime we can negotiate a resolution, that's always a better option. Getting to, to release the hostages, come out and surrender that that we all go home. Right. But anytime we go in to a structure, into a stronghold objective where someone knows we're out there and they know we might be coming in and they're ready for us, they always have the advantage. I mean, if you think of a military term, there's three assaulters for every defender because of the tactical advantage that the assaulters, uh, uh, that the defender has and the assaulters have to overcome. Uh, now, things like flashbangs and explosive breaching and all that, sure, that that helps. But um, they only got to get lucky uh, one time and we got to be good every time. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not one and I'm the biggest hypocrite in the world, but I'm not one for doing dynamic entry for narcotics or for evidence that can be, you know, seized later on. Uh, but ho uh, hostage situations, that's a different different situation. We have a saying in the fire service, you know, risk a little to save a little, risk a lot to save a lot. And there sometimes, you know, it's kind of like the moth to the flame. You'll get people pouring into a warehouse or some of these buildings where, you know, there's been no report of anyone being in there, no entrapment, but you know, all of a sudden we're filing firefighters in or putting them on the roof, and then we get some of these catastrophic events where we lose firefighters for what was a, a building that was covered by insurance. Did you see the same kind of thing in law enforcement? You want to be that guy that's kicking in the door, even though sometimes you actually, you know, the, the smart thing is to to stop and wait and evaluate and not go in. Oh, yeah. I talk about in the book when I was working narcotics, I was an adrenaline junkie. I was the usually the first one in the door and I wanted to be the first one. And it I, I just did not really you know, it was always that adage. It won't happen to me or I'm that good. And of course, now I have a different philosophy. But uh, yeah, I, I, I relished in the, in every time we got a we, we got a warrant. I, I uh, one of the stories I write about that I did get scared because we were uh, inside a stairwell going up, trying to sneak up to the bad guy's apartment. And the uh, uh, one of the crooks comes out on us and we're compromised right there in the stairwell. And uh, the guy, one of the guys in the team grabs that guy. But as he looks over his shoulder in the room, he yells shotgun. And so I, st I can't see in the room yet. But my buddy has said he saw a shotgun. So now I'm thinking, do I still go? Do I not go? But I got this entire team behind me pushing me. So we went and I ended up having to shoot the guy. And it's just by luck. I didn't get shot. But uh, I, I look, think back on that. That was so stupid. It was just for dope. You know, we could have grabbed that guy and backed down the stairways and got to a position we could defend and fight from and, and called them out uh, and, and not risk my lives or even had to shoot that guy. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's just it was a different philosophy. It was a different mentality. The rules of engagement were different. And um, we I, I still think the primary thing driving me is I just never really thought it would happen to me. 
Well, with you working in narcotics for a while as well, I want to put a, a question to you that I think the law enforcement community is, is the hardest question to ask because for years, sometimes decades, these men and women have been asked to enforce certain laws, especially when it comes to drugs. In my time in, in fire and uh, EMS, you know, you get to see... You get to see behind the curtain. You get to see the reality of, you know, is the war on drugs working? You know, are we improving crime? Are we improving addiction, et cetera, et cetera? And I've seen, you know, firsthand, I've got family in Portugal, for example, and I've spoken to people that initiated the decriminalization of addiction. That that doesn't mean the smugglers, doesn't mean the sellers, but the people who are consuming and seen some of the great results that they've had, which then freed up police resources and court resources to attack the the real shitbags you know the smeller the sellers and the smugglers with your career and i'm not wanting to load this question what is your perception of the war on drugs and and you know if if you're not a, a huge fan what are some of the solutions that maybe we should be looking at well obviously we're not winning it and a tremendous amount of resources have been poured into it i mean uh, you think about it's like it's like guns. They're saying we've got to quit selling these guns. Well, we've drugs have been illegal for for as long as I can remember, and they're still everywhere. You're not going to get rid of the guns. That you're just going to open up a black market, right? And so, uh, but and then like things like marijuana. Oh my God! Uh, you know, I can remember when I was a young cop, marijuana. I mean, just a if you had a roach, just one little bit of a you you go to jail for that. Now nowadays, now you get a ticket written if if anything. But I can remember as a big city cop pulling people over and uh, find a little bit of dope on them. I didn't want to have to go all the way downtown because I worked on the northwest side of town, and it was a twenty minute trip down there to have to tag the dope. So I just make them eat it. Then just you can eat eat it or we're going to pour it out. But I'm not taking you to jail for a half a baggie of marijuana. It's just crazy. You know, and, you know, once again, tie up my resources and things that I could be doing proactive to go find a hijacker or a burglar or a car thief. And that's where I wanted to focus my time. So um, I, I do. I do think that the war on drugs is it, it's if, if anything, it is kept it to a dull roar. But we are never as long as there is a, a need or a market, there will be a supply and we're never going to stop that. We, we just keep it to a dull roar. And you're right. A lot of people have gone to prison for a lot of years and they were nothing more than users. Uh, and I think that's less and less of that now. But um, if we can catch somebody trapping it uh, or, or, you know, with enough dope on them that they obviously had the intent to deliver, you don't know, no user has, you know, two pounds of cocaine, then those guys, they need to be thrown under the jail. But um, yeah, uh, I, um, it's, I just think of all the resources, time and effort that we did when I was even in narcotics and we did, it's still out there. It's just as prevalent, if not more than it was back then. Yeah. It's just, it's, just, it's an important conversation, you know, whichever answer it is, you know, but I think for me, watching through a responder's lens so many of the so much of the suffering so many of the deaths were related to prohibition you know putting 
the addicts in the shadows, you know, in the underworld versus, you know, we have a mental health crisis. I mean, we know that through school shootings. We know that through so many things at the moment. The fact that people are ready to destroy yeah. families and friendships over a mask, that's mental ill health, you know, not be able to have a normal conversation. So, you know, looking at it proactively and, and taking an addict and making them a medical patient, not a criminal, but then again, cutting the head off the snake and not only supply and demand, but also then focusing on the the uh, the criminals and follow the violence, as one of my guests said, that seems to be a much more progressive idea than you know, as you said, doing the same thing and expecting different results. Agreed. Yeah, it's a it's it's a vicious cycle, and it just continues on. And uh, I don't see any end in sight. Yeah, I think I think having the humility to try something different would be a good start. But uh, you know, that's uh, that requires yeah. leadership. So, <laughs> yeah. And a willing participation, you know, you, even if you got a leader up there saying this is what we need to do, if the people are not buying off on it, they're not, man. Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, it's going to take a, a lot of years to change the, the mindset of, of of the United States when it comes to something that controversial. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's it's storytelling and it's seeing that it, it works in other places that are also inhabited by human beings. We've got to stop thinking that we're this right. unique group of individuals. Right. We're not. We're people just like Portugal and Norway yeah, and Iceland absolutely. and other places. Right. Yeah. You know, but having said that, I, I, I was in, um, um, not Stockholm, but um, um, ah, Holland, uh, the uh, major city there. Um, God, it's got all the... Amsterdam. Uh, anyway. Yeah, Amsterdam. That's it. And of course, drugs are, are legal there. And oh my God! I mean, it, it was everywhere. I was shocked. I smelled people smoking dope, and and and, but, and just the filth. And I don't know that they had the crime there that we have, but the the filth and the um, um, I guess um, it almost like a, a, a degeneration of of human uh, decency and culture. Uh, I, I don't know if those two elements go hand in hand or not. But um, I, I was um, I thought, man, this could be a beautiful city if they cleaned it up. But it didn't look like they, there was the effort or the will to do it. Yeah, and I've heard that more than once as well. And one one uh, response I've heard is that so many people from other countries are going there to almost have that kind of drug Las Vegas experience. That you know, that's yeah. one of the contributing factors. But but yeah, it's certainly not a good advert it for legalized prostitution and and drugs if that's the case. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So with the, the SWAT specifically, talk to me about the, the evolution then. You said, for example, some of the tools, flashbangs, etc. What were some of the real benchmarks when it came to tactics and or equipment through your career? Well, as I mentioned, you know, when we started training with the Army, the special op guys, and they were showing us. And then, you know, we had some Navy SEAL, uh, the SEAL Team 6, but now they're called Dev Group. They would come to town and we'd get to see how they work. And then... Uh, we started a training organization within Texas. Um, uh, it was called the Texas Tactical Police Officer Association. I shouldn't say was, it still is. It's an extremely viable, uh, vibrant uh, organization. And what it does is link all of these uh, cities together and their police departments and, and their SWAT teams primarily uh, and learning from each other. When I was first on the SWAT team, I didn't have a clue any uh, I didn't know any SWAT officers in Dallas or Fort Worth or San Antonio or Austin or, you know, the list goes on and on, mainly big cities. Uh, but through this organization, starting to train with them and going to conferences, 
I, I, we started developing those relationships and friendships and we were sharing experiences. Hey, well, what do you guys do for this problem? And we learned from them. And then it, we got to where we were actually going to their police department and training with those guys and bringing those skills back. And we were doing the same. We were sharing with them. So that and and then the working with the military were the two things that literally took our police department to an or our SWAT team to a new level is uh, is, is, you know, if they've already faced this problem and got a solution for it, why do we need to reinvent the wheel? You know, let's just do what they're doing. It's working for them. That's something I see in the fire service. You know, we're so siloed and fragmented. And there's, there's exactly like you said, there's departments that are doing you know, the strength and conditioning, the fitness sides really well. And there's some that are doing EMS really well. And there's some that have, you know, great fire prevention, but it's a city and a county and they're next to each other. And a lot of times they don't talk, they don't knowledge share. So what was, what did that landscape look like for you in Texas and what made you you know, who was it that initiated that and made you create that collaboration of, of knowledge? Well, I uh, believe it or not, I got kind of bamboozled into becoming the president of the Texas Tactical Police Officer Association. And at the time, they were just a little fledgling group. It was about 130, 140 members from around the state. They did a conference once a year and maybe one or two classes. And that was about it. And uh, uh, they they won a 501c3. They had lost their their state uh, franchise uh, or, or uh, incorporation and uh, their bylaws were totally outdated, weren't even being adhered to. So anyway, uh, that was my claim to fame with them as I took and I rewrote all that. Well, I, I didn't. I got some attor- an attorney that with, with the city and and some other people helping me and we rebuilt the foundation of that organization. And then it really started building. And there are over 5,000 members now. There's classes going on at any given day somewhere in the state, SWAT classes. And, uh, and, and they're, they're, they're teaching them. They're bringing in instructors from other places, sometimes world champion shooters or world champion, uh, um, uh, uh, martial artists to teach, you know, uh, physical, uh, or defensive tactics. And, and, uh, anyway, it's, it's a, it's a, it's amazing how that organization has grown and they do wonderful things in terms of preparing these SWAT teams to all be on a even keel and to learn from each other and to be at a base level that that uh, they can you know do the job that they need to do and uh, that's those those things there have just been um, invaluable uh, to how the uh, the law enforcement and especially the tactical side of law enforcement has grown. Chuck told a great story about the bombings and he was giving so much credit to the regular patrol officers that were there initially in some of these events. And I heard you kind of touch on the same thing. So what is your perspective? You know, we have obviously SWAT in my my profession. We have, you know, squads and, and other stations that specialize in ropes and hazmat and all kinds of things. But all of us are going to be first responding to a lot of these events. And we, you know, the more knowledge we have, the better. What is your philosophy on the the standard of training for the patrol officers in the city? Well, it's... It's, it's inadequate, I think, with especially, believe it or not, with big cities uh, because of the numbers. When you have five or six thousand police officers in a city, you, you can imagine how much budgetary and time requirements it takes to roll those guys through, say, mandatory in-service training. They maybe get, to get it once a year. I 
I, I would say that most of the smaller cities, not not real small, not like you know Mayberry RFD, but let's say uh, uh, a city with a police department about 50, 60, 200 officers, sworn officers, they do a better job at retraining and and those standards keeping them you know current and and adequate because first off it's not overwhelming number of officers they have to train and but yet they still have a budget uh because of the city that they're they're in uh that can you know uh, uh support that that training but uh, uh most most police officers out there do not get the amount of training that they should both physical uh the equipment um and um and 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 you know think of uh, active shooter i can remember back in my day uh, when we as a SWAT team were training active shooter, but the police department would not let patrol officers train. And we're, we're I'm, I'm screaming at them. It's not going to be us that makes a difference. By the time we get there, all the killing is going to be over with. It's going to be those patrol officers. And and the argument was that's that's hostage rescue. That's SWAT tactics. It, well, it, maybe it is hostage rescue, but the fact remains what they do, those first two or three, and sometimes just that one officer on the scene, that's the one that's going to make the difference. And we have to supply them with both the training and the equipment and the authorization, the knowledge that they can do this and go in and do it. That's what's truly going to save lives. And, of course, training the people that are knee deep in the situation, you know, your teachers and your um, administrators and people, janitors. I don't care. Those people in those schools, what they do can a lot of times uh, make the situation much better even before the first patrol officer shows up. If it's a school resource officer, all the better. He's already on the scene. But sometimes it's just a matter of seconds. And even the first responder is not a uh, police officer is not going to make a difference. But they still need that training. And we saw what can happen in Uvalde and some of the other cities when we don't have leadership, we don't have the, the proper training, and, and it's, it's, uh, it can be horrific. So there's a the whole spectrum of philosophies of how we address the school security issue. Um, obviously, again, there's a much deeper mental health you know discussion to that as well amongst all the other contributing factors. But you have everything from you know every teacher with a gun all the way through to to nothing. Where do you fall, you know, with, with your experience and your perspective on how we provide protection for our, ch our children while we're going through this insane kind of mental health crisis that we're seeing in the last few decades? Yeah. Well, obviously, uh, I'm not necessarily against uh, administrators or even some teachers uh, being armed in a school. Uh, I would not want them to be packing it on their side for the kids to see or anything. I don't know exactly how that would work out, where the weapon would be, but they've got to have it. It's got to be readily accessible within you know, two or three seconds, they're off, they can get that gun. And here's the other thing, the standard of training. You don't just get to carry that gun. You have to be at the same proficiency. And I, I would tell you that most people that I know, and I've known two or three teachers that have, have um, admitted to me that they, they have a gun at school, even though they're not supposed to. But, and you know what, if they train with that gun, they're probably going to be as good or better trained than some of the police officers I know that would show up. And and more importantly is uh, uh, is if they've got it, they've got to be prepared to use it, because if you pull that gun and then you don't when it's obviously appropriate and necessary, clear and present danger, then you're probably going to become a victim of that gun. And uh, uh, so 
it, it there has to be a lot that goes into that. It it uh, a standard of training, uh, uh, policies and procedures, and uh, once again, I wouldn't want the kids to know that that a, a teacher or administrator is armed. That has to be you know um, handled somehow. I'm not sure, but you know we taught a class. It was called emergency response to an armed intruder, and we weren't going there with the guns, but we were teaching teachers. What can be an improvised weapon if it comes to that? And you would, we, their eyes would open up like this. How to barricade their door of a classroom that I'm telling you a SWAT team with a battering ram can't get in. And just little things that they can do uh, that would tremendously uh, increase their survivability of themselves and the, the students that they're entrusted to protect. And, and then, of course, you know, escape and how to escape, where to go. And we always say, if you don't know, don't go. Because you just take off running down a hallway, you might run right into the shooter. You've got to be little things like that. But as with any tactic, as with any technique, it has to be practiced. And it has to be practiced on a frequent basis because it is a perishable skill and it will go away. And, it, you know, you, you've heard the old adage, people say, well, if it ever came down to it, I could do it by God. Well, you will not rise to this occasion. You will default to your level of training. And if you don't have that training, then it's just fight or flight or a fetal position in a corner begging for your life. And none of those are good options. So uh, uh, it, it's as much about mental preparation as it is about physical preparation. But both of them are important. Now, what about um, training with law enforcement, fire and EMS? I've, I've worked for agencies that have been so, so good and, and had such a great relationship with law enforcement. We did some phenomenal training and I've had some where, you know, they literally were in the same building upstairs and they never even talked to each other, which was insanity. So, you know, with all the kind of agencies that you've been exposed to, talk to me about, you know, the, the ones you think that have done it best and some of the, maybe some of the horror stories out there too. Well, you know, I can remember back in the day when the fire department would tell us, we're not going into a hot zone. If there's bullets in there or a guy with a gun, it's you. You've got to make that scene secure before we go in. And we're like, well, wait a minute, follow us in. There's people that you could uh, could uh, possibly save. And really, I mean, it's going to be dangerous. I'm not telling you, but how dangerous it is going into a burning building. My, why are you so worried about a gun? We're going to be there. We're gonna, uh, but the paradigm shift, once again, has gotten to where now my police department, they have firefighters, paramedics that work with them. They come out and train with them. They wear their same uniform. They even have gone through the, the uh, certification. They can carry a gun. And uh, they, they work hand and foot with those guys. And, of course, they have the comms to communicate with the rest of the responding fire department. And, and they're that, that transition in between. So uh, I know several police departments. And, and once again, I will credit uh, the Texas Tactical Police Officers Association in supporting that and in, in, in uh, going out and encouraging these agencies to train with each other, whether it's uh, a county uh, police department, I mean, county sheriff's department and a police department or the, the police department and the fire department and and trying to, you know, uh, uh, support each other and be there and, and, and instead of working independent of each other. You know, it all comes back to the team. We've got to be pulling this rope from the same direction or we're going to no, not get anywhere. So uh, I'm a huge supporter of uh, bringing that, uh, uh, those assets and those things that a fire department can do. And they do it a hell of a lot more like breaching doors than, than police departments do and than police officers. Uh, and and, and uh, as 
So, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm share the wealth. You know, why should you be sitting on this technique or this tactic or this knowledge when it could be helping someone else that's doing the same job, saving lives? Now, with the SWAT medic position, again, there's a spectrum. Um, you know, my place I worked for two departments ago, um, there was no SWAT pro- medic program. So we were all the way in the cold zone, you know, in an ambulance. Then you have the ones that kind of go in, but they're they're not armed. They've just got a, you know, probably a, a helmet and a vest that everyone wears, no matter what shape or size you are. And then you have, as you said, the true, in my opinion, you know, warm zone SWAT medic that actually has not only the protective equipment, but has the ability to use a firearm if they need to. But obviously, that's not their primary role. They're not going in first. Yeah. Which is your kind of favorite dynamic when it comes to that genesis? Oh, that, excuse me, that fusion of, of fire and EMS. Oh, I, I like the fact that those those paramedics are coming right with us. You know, if you take a bullet to the chest and I've got a sucking chest wound, I mean, I don't want me to have somebody have to get me and drag me back out to the warm zone. I want that medic right there. Now, in the originally, we started taking SWAT guys and we were training them on emergency medicine. And, and that was better than nothing. But I don't want a guy working on me that hasn't ever done it for real. He's done it in SWAT in the, in the TAC medic school. It was last year. And he's thinking, okay, now I want a guy that when he's not training with me or working on me, he's on an ambulance every night running nut cut and shooting DOAs. He's saving lives every night. His skills are so fresh. That's who I want working on me. And I'll take that guy even on maybe a, a, a Maybe not an emergency room doctor, but uh, a medical doctor that runs a practice out of his, you know, some building somewhere. Uh, we were doing uh, tech medic work and we had a doctor there and they were getting ready to start IVs and he was terrible. And he, he finally got frustrated. He says, I don't do this shit. Nurses do this for me. And he got up and walked off. He got pissed off because he couldn't start an IV. But you got to thinking about it, he's right. I mean, he, those things are all done before he gets involved. He probably hadn't done an IV since he was in medical school, you know? So I want that guy working on me and working on my, my, my friend or my partner or this poor citizen here that, that does this for a living every day. Their skills are just way too fresh to, to be ignored. Now, one more area in this kind of conversation, the SRO position. Um, I had, sadly, a, a personal event with an SRO at my son's middle school where, I mean, just a, a horrendous police officer, you know, and she made some awful decisions that had some detrimental impacts to my son. But then, you know, you see some of these other um, events where there's almost a shooting and they've got some great SROs that, that run towards the danger and, and neutralize the target. And obviously, you've got Parkland and Navaldi, which is, you know, another horrendous example. So what is your philosophy on which kind of officers end up at that schools? Because I know in, in the past, that used to kind of be a kind of retirement, one foot out the door kind of position. Yeah, that's exactly right. It got to be it was, you know, it's like guys that just want to retire and they get a little thing. But in this day and age, our children are our most valuable resource. And uh, I, it still drives me crazy when I go by and I see whether it's just a police officer, or school resource officer, that they're disheveled, they're uniform, they're way overweight. They're I guarantee he hasn't drawn that pistol uh, like his life depended on it since he left the police academy. I mean, you, you look where he positions things on his belt, his extra ammunition, his hand. You can just see this guy 
or gal, either one, doesn't have a clue, hasn't ever had to really fight for their life or haven't done it in way too, you know, way too many years. Uh, but yet they're protecting one of our most valuable assets. So that's just um, that's unthinkable to me. So that their training and their standard should be the same as a guy or a gal that's riding night shift patrol in a in a in a in a ghetto somewhere. Uh, they, they, in fact, I would like to see them rotate out every once in a while and get a little bit of more of that exposure and rotate back in. I, I don't know if that's feasible, but that's what we were doing. You know, I always used to always say, if I could be chief for a day, uh, in my command staff, all of these other assistant chiefs that live in the ivory tower that have this glass ceiling between what's going on in the street and what their yes men are telling them, I would tell them at one day of the week, you're going to get out of your office and you're going to go get in a patrol car and you're going to ride with a line patrol officer and you're going to find out firsthand what's going on on the street instead of listening to you know a yes man tell you oh yeah they're good mm -hmm. i talk to those guys i'm out there all the time yeah we don't have to worry about them and then you go talk to the patrol officer and he goes what the hell did he tell him he's got to be crazy you know go find out for yourself and the same thing with those school resource officers if your job you know, it, it's it, it gets down to um, 99.9 percent .9 of your job is going to be boring. But then that 0.1 percent is going to be sheer terror. And your life and the lives of those entrusted in you depend on how well you operate in that terror. And if you're not out there practicing those skills and operating under elevated conditions, I'm not saying, you know, it's, it's ever going to be like the real thing, but there are things you can do in training to elevate, whether it's through time or physical exercise or uh, the unknown, just not knowing what's around that next corner. Get that heart rate pumping, because when your heart is racing 180 beats per minute, trying to have fine motor skills is uh, and cognitive thinking skills is going to be difficult, if not impossible. So as we move forward to 2023, what are the things that you've seen that have kind of evolved now um, when it comes to strength and conditioning and the combatives, defensive tactics, kind of hands-on element? Well, I think the, the culture today is much better. I mean, the fact that most cops don't smoke cigarettes anymore. That's, you know, when back in my day, when I first came out of the police academy, it was probably just the opposite. Most did, and a few didn't. And they smoked in the offices, uh, and, and, and we all probably drank too much. But uh, there was cigarette smoke everywhere. It was just, it was accepted. And now it's just the opposite. And then we're starting to learn more and more about, you know, when we start seeing our friends die of heart attacks and cancer and things, and we're thinking... Yeah, he was kind of burning both. And you think all the things that he or she did wrong to put themselves in that situation. Not always. Sometimes it was just, you know, in the cards. But uh, I think the culture has gotten much better. And uh, and then the minimum standards for law enforcement. You know, there's there's quite a few departments now. Um, they're they're incentivizing their officers to come in and uh, do a PT test, sometimes mandated. Uh, at Houston, it's incentivized. And what you get is you get one free holiday a year if you come in and pass this PT test. And I can remember right at the end of my career doing this and uh, two guys that were extremely large in front of me, uh, they had to take your blood pressure first. 
and their blood pressure was too high to go and take the test. And they were high-fiving each other because they didn't have to take the test now uh, and because their blood pressure was too high. And I'm looking at them like, oh, my God, really? And I can remember measuring somebody for body armor, and I can't even get the tape all the way around their waist. And I'm thinking body armor is the least of your worries. You're probably going to die of a heart attack way before you get shot, you know. But uh, I, I do see a shift, and I think it is getting better. And uh, uh, I, I think more, more officers are taking care of themselves. I think they are exercising more. Uh, it's still not enough and uh, still not pushing themselves. But, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still in the gym four days a week and, uh, and, and, and I don't have to anymore. But that's just a mindset that I've always had. And, uh, and, I, and I wish more people did. Now, what about the combative side? You know, when you first started, that was pretty much when the Bruce Lee films are coming out. Now, obviously, we've got, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and uh, obviously there's always, there's always been wrestling, but Krav Maga and some other things that, that some of the law enforcement guests have said they like putting into their training. What are some of the things that you, if you were on the street today, what would you lean into now? Oh, I would be definitely into more grappling, uh, taking somebody down in mobilization stuff because uh, back in my day, we boxed in the police academy. We had to box and you had to fight and all that, but that's all we did. That and baton strikes. Well, you, you know, as well as I do, a fist fight is usually not going to end up very well. And you're going to get hurt. They're going to get hurt. And you're probably not going to end up standing anyway. You're going to go to the ground. So if you're going to go to the ground, then let's learn to fight on the ground. And uh, I, and if I can just survive, even a, a guy that's bigger and stronger than me, if I can wrap him up, and stay close to him where he can't hurt me and just hang on until the cavalry gets there because they're coming. And now, now that's me speaking in urban law enforcement. You get these poor state troopers up in a, city, a t state like Montana. I mean, they're back up. It may be hours away. So they're in a different situation than me. But for me, uh, I can remember having to put down what we call a sissy officer, meaning, meaning that you, you get on the radio and you say, I need help. And they're, everybody's coming. And I'm going to tell you, in an urban city like Houston, within four or five minutes, that's a, that's a, you're hearing sirens coming. And it's usually going to be a lot quicker than that. Uh, so if I can lock this guy up and, and, and keep him from hurting me and just survive till then, that's great. If I know uh, some immobilization tactic that can get him to submit, then that's even better. But um, uh, my... my, my I think uh, uh, grappling and immobilization. And, and the, the other thing I would like to say about that is there are skills that can be retained and it doesn't take a lot of talent. You just have to practice it and you have to practice it fairly frequently and against another adversary, not against the dummy that doesn't hit back, you know, because it's the old Mike Tyson quote, you know, everybody's got a plan to get hit in the face, you know, and, and, and you got to get, you got to get, you got to get your nose punched every once in a while to realize what it's like. I always like to think back. We don't let police officers carry a taser unless they've been tased. We don't let uh, police officers, uh, uh, I mean, SWAT team guys uh, carry flashbangs or use flashbangs unless they've been exposed to them. Same thing with pepper spray. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. You need to be exposed to it because you're out there using it. You're probably going to get exposed to it that way. And we want to prepare these people. So heaven forbid it happens to them in a real world environment. This is nothing new. I've been through this. I've been trained. I got the confidence. I can survive this. You know, and, and it's the same thing with fighting. You have got to know what it's like to be in a real fight. And, and it, it, within safety protocols, uh, um, I, I think that that is a necessary skill. And it has to be done regularly.
Well, I think that's when the strength and conditioning side comes in is so important is, you know, you can be, try and get comfortable being uncomfortable in jujitsu. You know, you can do some of the training where you are kind of replicating the fight, but also a workout, you know, when, when it's a foot pursuit or you're in a fire trying to breach your way out because you're trapped. If you haven't been tired, really, really tired for a long, long, long time, you're going to tap out really early. But if it was two days ago that you put yourself through the grinder, that's going to serve you very well on the street as well. Absolutely. Uh, just that conditioning. And, and once again, even if I can't um, immobilize this guy completely, and if I can't uh, get him to submit or anything like that, if I can just stay close to him, stay out of his range of his weapons, meaning mostly going to be his fist, uh, and lock him up to an extent and then outlast him. I'm telling you, almost every foot chase I was in, and that's because I was always in shape, is very few that I outsprint them, but I outdistance them. And I had a foot chase from hell in the book. Uh, I chased this guy. In fact, I had people telling me later on that they kept hearing me on the radio, and they're like, oh, my God. How long is this going to go on? This foot chase lasted almost 15 minutes. Now, you can think 15 minutes jumping fences and climbing things and falling down and getting up and 15 minutes of a dead out sprint. But I, I just outlasted him. I, I never really was faster than him. But I tried to keep him in sight long enough to, 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 to wear him out. And I did. That's exactly what one of my friends, she's a canine handler, and uh, she said she never tries to keep up with him. She's as long as I can keep seeing them, I'll, I'll be doing, you know, 80% of what they're doing because they're going to get tired. That adrenaline's right. going to run out and then she's going to be able to catch them up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, she's got uh, that, she's got that hair missile. She can send that. That's great. But I know she doesn't always have him. Uh, unfortunately, we had a canine officer killed and uh, the dog was in the, the back of the patrol car and he watched his, his partner get killed. Uh, if he would have been out there, it would have been a different situation, but it, it's one of those um, tragic things that didn't work out for him. But yeah, we used uh, uh, canines a lot in SWAT, especially on a, a guy that we're going to hit him with beanbags or something, try to take him into custody and uh, flashbanging, hit him with a beanbag and then send the dog. And we call it the hair missile because it's just uh, uh, with teeth. And they'd get there real quick and keep him real busy until we could get up there and, and get him the rest of the way in, under control. I had uh, one of the kind of revered canine trainers, Mike Gooseby from LAPD on the show. And, and he was talking, obviously, about his career and some amazing stories. And most of the stories were how someone wasn't killed because of the canine, you know, how it, how it was actually the less lethal force. But he was also talking about the movement to try and get rid of a lot of canines, you know, because of the optics rather than the actual reality. What is your perspective on that? I think dogs are... A a valuable tool and it's it, it, obviously the, like anything, any tool can be abused. And uh, sometimes uh, the, they put the dog in danger because they send the dog into something he shouldn't be sent into. But uh, uh, I think if they're used appropriately, they are an invaluable tool. And I, just like you said, I've seen situations where we would have probably had to end up killing this guy had we not had a canine because he was waiting in ambush for us. And, you know, we would, you know, come up to a threshold. We, uh, you know, we, we, uh, look around, we use our camera poles and everything, try to spot him, but there's areas that I just, we can't see. Well, now they can send the robot, but back then we'd send the dog 
And I get, and I had our dog take down guys that had guns in their hands. And I don't know why they didn't shoot that dog, but they didn't. I thank goodness they didn't. But uh, we would, I, he was waiting on us. And uh, he could have killed one of us. We probably would have killed him. Uh, but that dog saved both of our lives. Well, I want to get to the book. Just one more topic before we do. Um, you know, we are in an environment at the moment where certainly police and somewhat even fire are being demonized by the public. And again, it's not most. It's those squeaky wheels, the small percentage that seem to have all the airtime at the moment. Talk to me about, you know, again, King for a Day. What would you do to try and shift that branding of law enforcement back to, you know, to where it should be, to, to the fact that you hold bad apples in departments accountable, but the rest of the men and women are out there trying to do good in the world and, and you know, be proactive and, and reduce crime rather than be reactive and have to end up on some god-awful YouTube video? Well, you know, I think uh, TV shows like Cops, uh, have done a world of good of taking the general public and putting them in that police car and seeing what those cops are out there doing on a daily and what they have to put up with. And uh, and you're right. I think uh, it, it, you know, we can have a hundred police officers out there that save lives every day. And then we have one bad apple and that's the one they're going to remember, you know, and I, I, uh, <laughs> They're almost as bad as the ones that do nothing. I, I can remember an old saying on the, when I first became a cop, it says, you can do nothing your entire career and you will get a pension, but you can go out and do something and get your ass run off. And, you know, I hated that mentality because they're afraid of doing something that might cause them to lose their pension, you know, and, and that's kind of where it's getting, you know, I, I, I sit in my, my living room now and, and I look at cops that are doing stuff and with the, with the best intentions, but it's just gone terribly south for them. And now they're not only going to lose their job, they may lose their freedom. I think of that female sergeant up in Indianapolis a while back that accidentally drew her gun instead of her taser. She went to prison and I, I just feel so terrible for her. Uh, that, you know, I think she had the best intentions and maybe it's poor training. Maybe she just had a, a brain fart. I don't know. But, um, uh, you know, these citizens uh, police programs that well, some agencies have where they get citizens to come in and, and ride with the police department and or uh, uh, take some of the training. I think those are invaluable. We had a, a, an activist in the city of Houston that was always on our ass. I mean, he was always on the news, MFing us. Uh, maybe not. He's, a, he's actually a preacher, so he wasn't in MFing us. But he was always you know, down on us, on us, on us. They put him through at the police academy one of these shoot, don't shoot scenarios. Actually put him through several. He, he flunked everyone. He ended up either shooting the wrong person or he got shot. And he came out of that program and they actually got it on the news camera, him saying, I've got a different perspective of what law enforcement has to put up with, you know, because he saw, you know, you're making that split second decision. And uh, when you're scared to death and your life is on the line, whether it's good or bad. But but anyway, uh, 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 just getting back to your question, I think anytime we can get those TV cameras out there showing the public what we do on a daily basis. I think when we can get the news media to um, um, 
broadcast and make a bigger deal about all the great things that cops do on a daily basis. Uh, and, and then these police academies, uh, these uh, civilian police uh, academies, getting them more involved in, in what's going on. Th that would be my answer. But you're always going to have that activist. You're always going to have that squeaky wheel. And I, I hate it when cops get um, um, a bad attitude because they think that that's everybody. And it's not. It's a small fraction of the general public. I think far and away, the public out there has a very good opinion of cops and what they do. I agree 100%. I really do. Well, you you have this story career. Um, one of the areas that I see a lot of people struggle, and especially you know when we're talking about the mental health side, is the transition out. You know, we we start as a brand new wide-eyed rookie. You know, we go through our different kind of stations and specialties, and then one day the door closes behind you and your ID doesn't work anymore. What was that transition like for you? Because you're obviously such a passionate, you know, police officer even to this day. Well, it was. It was relatively easy for me, not easy, but relatively easy. Uh, and that's because I actually got hired away by uh, Safari Land, a law enforcement com company. And they they had put me in the training unit. So I was still in the industry. I was just doing it from a different perspective. Uh, but I'll tell you, you know, back in my day, we had these pagers. Uh, they, m most cops don't even know what the hell a pager is now. But we wore them, and it was 24-7. Uh, we had... Uh, we had this outbook and unless your name was in that outbook and they would only have five people in there. And uh, if your name wasn't in there, then you were on call 24 seven. So that pager was always with you. And uh, I, the day I left the police department, I wanted to go over the ship channel bridge and throw that pager into the ship channel, but I didn't because I have to write a letter on it and probably pay for it. Uh, but when I went home that night, of course, I'm on, on call every night I would come in. I'd have to park my police car uh, in a direction. So, you know, my kids or my wife didn't trap me in and it's easy to get out. And I would literally lay my clothes out and I would make a pot of coffee so that when the page went off or the bank, I'd run into the kitchen, hit brew. And then I'd run back there and get dressed and, you know, slap some water on my face. And by the time they come out, I'd have a, at least one cup of coffee already brewed. And I th put that in my coffee cup and then I'm hitting the door and I'm headed out. But the best feeling came over me when I parked my car that night and I realized I'm not going anywhere unless I want to. There's not going to be a pager. There's not going to be a phone call. I'm here all night tonight. And that was such a warm feeling that came over me. Uh, I, I, I can remember it like it was yesterday. I, uh, when I transitioned out, I, I left after 14 years. So it wasn't a retirement. It was more just transitioning to focus on what I'm doing now. But it was the same thing. I mean, not only were you not having to answer to certain people anymore, which in itself was a huge weight off the shoulders, but I lay in my bed and go, doesn't matter. There's no tones going to go off. I'm not going to have to get up at 1 a.m. and 2 a.m. and like I can sleep all night. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I'm on chapter 10, and I, I hear you talking about your tones and some of your stories. They were really good. I, I, I can't wait. to. I'll have it finished by tomorrow. Beautiful. Well, that's a perfect segue. So let's talk about your book. So The Long Road Home, you know, you, you transition out. You're working for Safari Land. What made you decide to sit down and write a book? Well, uh, you know, I get with friends, mainly non-law enforcement, like my wife's a high school teacher, and we'd go out with her fellow teachers and that didn't, and they're always, hey, tell us, tell us a, a police story. And so I get to telling stories and then another one, another one. And then by the end of the night, 
typical phrase I would hear would be, man, you ought to write a book. And I'm like, I can't write a book. I can barely spell. And, uh, and, but then after I developed this career and these, uh, this, you know, uh, I guess resume, I had a professor, a friend of mine from the Texas State University asked me to co-author a book with him. And I said, you know, Tom, I, I, you know, I, no, I, I'm not. Yes, yes. Look, I'll do all the heavy lifting. I just need you to write about tactics and about training. You know that. So I thought, well, yeah, I know that. So I did. Uh, and uh, in fact, I have it right here. It's called uh, Training the SWAT Trainer by Tom Majerus and Sandy Wall. And uh, anyway, uh, we donated all the proceeds to a uh, scholarship there at Texas State University. So we didn't make anything off. But it built me the confidence like, you know what, maybe I could write a book. And so uh, I worked for uh, 28 years for the Houston Police Department, 15 years for Safari Land. And then I finally said, that's it. I've had enough. Um, uh, COVID was about to start. And uh, I could hear, you know, what's coming from over China. And uh, I wouldn't get on planes anymore. And I told my wife, I said, man, I've got to stay busy or I'm going to end up committing suicide or becoming an alcoholic like all my friends. And uh, in fact, uh, two characters in the book, uh, they're two of the main characters in the book have since committed suicide. And uh, and then uh, another one, three or four more are alcoholics. So I knew if I didn't stay busy, something bad was going to happen. So I told my wife that she said, well, why don't you write that book we've always talked about? And I said, you know, I don't think I can. She said, sure, you can. I'll help you. So I started sitting down every morning. I'm, I'm an early bird. I get up about four o'clock in the morning. I have my coffee. I watch a little bit of the news and then I'd start typing it type out a story and I print it and I'd hand it to my wife. And when she finally got up and she'd get a red ink pen out, of course, being a high school teacher for 23 years <laughs> and she would rip it up, man. I mean, I'll, Oh, it would, I'd get an F she handed it back to me and I was just, Oh my God, this is horrific. I, I can't believe I, I, I didn't see that. So I'd sulk for a while and get my feelings hurt. And then finally I said, okay. So I'd sit down and I'd rewrite the story. I handed it to her again and this go on for two or three times. And then finally, I get a little smiley face. And I was so happy. I was like a third grader, you know, that got an A in, in class. And so I would put that into a folder. And so I just started writing stories, all those stories that I had told all those years. And some stories from friends of mine that, uh, that you know, told me the story. And I thought, well, I'm going to add that story to it. That's a great story. And um, once I got them all, it took me about three years, uh, just, you know, a, an hour or two in the morning here and there. I didn't write, write every day. And uh, and and I got them all. And then I had to sit down and think, OK, now I got to come up with a storyline to link all these stories. So that was the hardest part. That took almost a year of linking them in consecutive order with the storyline. And, a, and a, you know, I've got a villain. You meet him right at the beginning of the book. And then uh, I got a transition of the main character. Uh, and as he starts to become demoralized and he starts, you know, self-medicating with alcohol because of all the things he's, he's seeing and he's involved with. And then, uh, and then he has a tragic event at the end that he almost dies. And, um, and then there's a savior. That's, that's the surprise. Uh, there's a lot of turmoil in it. There, it's mainly funny stories, but there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's several tragic stories, several extremely dangerous stories and one or two that, that in, terribly but um um anyway uh that's that's how I've, and I've, i i once i finally got the manuscript i sent it to a cop friend of mine that had written a book and was very successful 
And he wrote me back and said, man, I love this book. He said, can I give it to a publisher friend of mine? And I said, sure. And then the next thing I know, they called me and said, man, we want to print this book. And I'm like, really? Awesome. So the rest is history. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, there's there's so many you know stories in it. I think this is kind of a unique book because there are, certainly in the fire service, there are quite a few books now of people with their own story and their, their mental health struggle and maybe their near suicide, um, which are important. But um, and then there's some some books normally older from like you know older FDNY war years that are you know war stories, but we don't have a lot of those where it's just you know like you said it's it there's a theme to it and there's a through line and there's you know good guy and a bad guy and all that stuff, but it's real life stories from a career. So I found it very refreshing that you combine not only the kind of biography element but you brought fiction into it to tie it all together. Thank you. Yeah, uh, it was it was a. Uh, people that knew me called me up and said, man, I, I can't believe you didn't tell that story about that time that we were. And I was like, wow, I forgot all about that story. So now I'm writing a sequel and I'm writing those stories that I left out. And uh, and then they, I got a storyline in, uh, in mind, uh, linking them all, but I haven't quite nailed that down yet. But that's going to take me another two or three years. But it, it was really a labor of love uh, because I had a blast. I, I you're. Uh, my my wife would come in here right now and tell you that she would hear me laughing in here as I'm writing because I was reliving what happened and I forgot about how funny it was. And then as I'd write it and then I'd reread it to myself and I'd start busting out laughing. Just it's some of the crazy, stupid things that you just can't believe really happened. But they did. I'm telling you, every one of those stories in here really did happen. They, they've been changed a little bit to make them fit the storyline. But uh, that's that's the uh, in, the, the amazing thing about it, it, it really did happen. When I wrote mine, there was definitely an element of the catharsis as well. Did you find it therapeutic as you were writing these? Oh, absolutely. A lot of things made sense. And some people that I held grudges against, I don't hold a grudge against them anymore. Uh, I uh, look back on it and, and I, you know, I either worked for them or worked around them and I just didn't like them at the time. And I'd go up to them right now and shake their hand, give them a hug and tell them, uh, you know, uh, I, I love them. Uh, and and I've come to a, a happy place as a result of re reliving all that place. Beautiful. Well, you, you touched on, you know, how heartbreakingly several people in the book have now passed away. As we kind of close this out, what is your perspective of the mental health crisis within your profession specifically? It's, it's bad. I don't think the general public realizes, uh, you know, we hear about 22 veterans a day on average uh, commit suicide. And that is that's a, that's horrific and unbelievable. And I I'm, I give to wounded warriors and I give to um, tunnels to towers and I do what I can to support those people. And my son was in the army and I, um, I'm, you know, I love him and respect him for doing that. Um, but I don't know what the numbers are for. Uh, first responders, uh, whether it's policemen, firemen, or um, or or uh, medical uh, personnel, e even even ER rooms. But when so much of your life has been involved with death and gore and 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 disappointment uh, because of the bad guy didn't get what was coming to him, uh, or you know got away with it, or whatever. Um, uh, that that takes a toll. It, it really does. I, I, how these homicide detectives, and I've got several of them that are friends. How they put up with it, I don't know. I I don't know if you 
if you've read enough of the book, but I start talking about this box in my brain. And, uh, and whenever I would experience something really, really bad, um, I would somehow find a way of opening this little box up and tucking it away. And, and it's closed and I don't deal with it. And I just went on. It's like it never happened. And then after 28 years, the 26th, 27th, 28th year, that box is getting really, really full. And then I get a, one of the worst stories of them all is right at the end. And I, I can't get the lid closed. And I know it's my time. It, I, I've had enough, you know, uh, when my box is full, you know that. And I, I think sometimes maybe cops, they, they don't, they don't want to reach out to help and maybe fire firemen as well. I don't know, but there's that machoism, right? And they, they, I'm tougher than that. And I don't want to help. And, uh, one of my buddies, uh, uh that's in the book that committed suicide. I, I wish I could have been for him there for him, but nobody knew what, what he was dealing with. In fact, the second one, I, I say the same thing. He was already retired, but I didn't realize what he was dealing with. And uh, I wish I could have been there for him. Uh, if he would have reached out, you know, I, I, I know I would, I, I would have gotten a car and drove, you know, 10 hours in the middle of the night to see him and to talk him out of it. But it didn't work for that. It didn't work out like that. Well, this is why it's so important that we have these conversations. I mean, the statistics of known deaths, I believe, is double the line of duty death in fire and police, you know, with suicides alone. But that's the ones that are reported. There's so much stigma and shame. You know, a lot of them aren't reported. Then you have the overdoses, which are even more stigmatized. But I would argue is still part of the same problem, mental health crisis. So, you know, these conversations are invaluable. With you specifically. And, and alcoholism as well in, in the police department. I know it, it's rampant. It really is. It's just people self-medicating uh, with that so that they can forget and go to sleep. I did it. I, I, I don't consider myself an alcoholic, but I, I know I drank too much, especially toward the end. So now with, with you identifying that, you know, your box was kind of overflowing, what have been some of the tools that have helped you navigate that and then kind of put some healthier coping mechanisms back in? Uh, well, the book was a, was a big part of it. Of course, that was several years later. Uh, I would say uh, uh, that we start in an alumni within uh, our SWAT team and we get together uh, every Thursday at a lunch and we all get together and we tell war stories and we reminisce and we support each other. We, uh, I'm three of the guys that are in the book. Uh, we're going to Montana in two weeks for an outing up there to go trout fishing. And, uh, and, and I, I think that camaraderie and that sharing of not only the pain, but the good times as well. And, and, and seeing the big picture, is all important. And then sometimes it, you really need to get professional help. And it, uh, the, the, the psychiatrist in the book, the department of psychiatrist, he was there my entire career. And I had to see him more than once. If you were involved in the shooting, you had to go to him. And, and, uh, and he could always tell there was something going on with me. And he would always follow me out to my car and say, Sandy, you can always call me. I'm here. And he gave me his private cell phone. or Well, it wasn't a cell phone number. He gave me his home number and the office number. He said, you call that number anytime you need to talk, and I'll be here for you. And uh, I, I I love that guy for doing that. I, I never did. I was too macho. I wish I would have because it could have probably made my life a, a little bit easier. But um, I was just um, uh, not willing to let that shield down and let somebody in. 
Yeah, absolutely. And this is the problem I've talked about a lot. You know, a lot of us, I mean, you're a little bit older than me, but a lot of us in our generations were raised on that kind of macho John Wayne, Schwarzenegger, you know, men don't cry bullshit. And now, sadly, that's, you know, caused a lot of our men and women to to just kind of hold it all in. And like you said, they seem fine until they weren't. So I think now this is a good thing about the younger generation coming on as a hope this conversation is making them right from the front door go, it's okay for me to have a bad day. It's okay for me to, you know, use therapy to, I mean, there's so many things now that do work. So I hope at least the generations behind us will, will be in a better place than some of us that were, you know, beginning. I mean, you, you began in the seventies. I began, you know, pretty much the beginning of this millennia, but, uh, and there was zero, zero discussion on mental health, even as young as I was in my oh, career. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You, you were a pussy if you talked about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and I just finished the chapter where you're talking about taking your uh, uh, physical therapy and how much it did for you. And I think back on, God, I, I wish I would have gone through the physical therapy you went through because all the aches and pains of now of, of uh, you know, 22 years on the SWAT team and uh, doing some crazy, crazy things uh, in competitions and all that. And I was powerlifting and, and and uh, yeah, I, I'm suffering from all that now. The uh, uh, I wish I would have uh, got, gotten better therapy at the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, even that. I mean, you know, what you're provided through a department is not always the right one. You've got to become your own advocate too, as you'll read. You know, <laughs> I didn't exactly take the uh, initial advice that yeah. was given to me. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. So your book is the Long Road Home, Sandy Wall. Where can people find the book? Well, right now it's on Amazon. Um, I had it on several other venues and uh, my publisher and I, we kind of split uh, ways and we reissued it. Uh, but uh, Amazon is the primary place and it's in Kindle, paperback and hardback. Beautiful. Well, Sandy, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, thank you to Chuck as well for connecting us. But, uh, you know, it's been such a great conversation. You have such a unique perspective, especially like myself being a small town you know, young boy going into <laughs> right into the heart of the shit and becoming a first responder. But, uh, you know, your perspective on school safety and fitness and combatives and some of the other things we talked about are invaluable. So I want to thank you for being so generous and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Once again, I just said thank you for the opportunity and hopefully our shared experiences and the stories we tell, someone's out there listening and it could help them, uh, especially down the long road home. Oh.